Many, year ago, many years ago in a small west, Midwestern town, a merchant had identical twin boys. And they were so close they'd even dressed alike a lot. And it was really hard to tell them apart. It was almost nearly impossible to tell one from the other. And many thought that their extraordinary uh, closeness was the reason why they never got married. And when their father passed away, the brothers took over the family business of running the mercantile store. And the brothers did great, and they really, they really operated well with each other. But one day, one of the brothers, in the haste and the busyness of the day, at the back of the store, received some money, some cash, and instead of putting it, opening the till and depositing it into the till, he placed it on top of the till. He got busy with some other customers back at the front of the store. And later on, when he realized I left the money on top of the till, he went back to the, to till, to the till to find the money, to put it in the till, and it was gone. So he inquired of his brother. He says, did you see some money sitting on top of the till, and did you take it? And his brother said, no, I didn't see it, and I certainly didn't take it. Well, the, the one brother who put the money on top of the till, he was a little bit suspicious. And so an hour later, he came back to his brother with the same question. And he asked him again with a little bit of suspicion in his voice as he approached the subject with his brother. And his brother said, no, I didn't get it. And he actually got really defensive about it. And over the next few weeks, as they would bring up the subject of the lost money, they would have these these arguments, heated arguments, that turned into just a, 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 a vicious charge and countercharge to the point that it terminated their partnership with the mercantile. And so the way that they dealt with it is they built a partition wall right down the middle of it and split the store into two halves, each brother having their own. And for the next 20 years, they wouldn't talk to each other and they were in uh, complete um, competing business against one another. This went on, and it created this open, diverse sore within the community. Everybody knew everybody had an idea. One day, a car without a state license plates pulled up in front of the store, and a well-dressed man went into one of the brothers' stores and asked how long the store had been there. Learning that it had been just over 20 years, he said to said to him, then you are the one with whom I have must settle an old score. Some 20 years ago, I was in a really bad way, and I had no job, and so I was bouncing from job to job, and I was wandering throughout this country. And one day I happened to get off a boxcar in your town, and I absolutely had no money and had not eaten in days. And as I walked down the alley, I looked in the back door of your store, and I saw sitting there on the till some cash. And I looked and there was nobody around. Everybody else was at the front of the store, busy with customers. So I quickly snuck in, took the cash, and snuck out. Now I need you to know something. I grew up in a Christian home, and I have never done anything like that before. I'd never stolen anything from anybody before that, and I have never stolen anything from anybody since. And it has been this act of stealing has weighed on my conscience ever since I did it, and I have finally decided that I would never be at peace until I came back and faced up to the sin of my past, and I want to make it right with you. And so he said, I would like to pay the money back with interest. Tell me what I need to do to make this right with you. And the old store owner hung his head 
and started to weep bitterly. And when he finally controlled himself, he took the man by the arm and said, would you come with me and tell that story again to the man next door? And he went into the store next door and told the same story. And there stood two men, almost identical, both weeping bitterly over the years of wasted life on something that was never dealt with and there was no mercy or grace extended in any way. This morning, the beatitude we're looking at first is a perfect corrective for all those who were caught in conflict and bitterness and unforgiveness. The beatitude we're looking at is Matthew 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. The word that is translated merciful means to give help to the wretched, to relieve the miserable. The idea here is is that mercy gives attention to those who are in misery. And from this, we make an important distinction between mercy and grace. Grace is shown to the undeserving. Mercy is compassion to the miserable. Mercy is not just feeling compassion, it exists where something is done to alleviate distress. Now, I want you to remember, you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Because Jesus told the story, story, a, a young attorney came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment of all? What's the law say? What should I do? How do I, how do I live according to your word? And Jesus said, there was a man who was traveling. And I'll make this real short. In his travels on a really bad road, he got mugged and beaten and everything stolen from him. He was left half naked and half dead alongside the road. And then came along some religious leaders in their community. And the first one just passed by and looked at him and said, oh, that poor miserable soul. The second guy came along and said, oh, somebody should help that guy. And he moved along. And as Jesus told the story, he came to the the most unbelievable thing. Jesus looked at him and and he said to the young guy, he says, the man that came along next after these Republican religious leaders walked on by and did nothing, a liberal Democrat came along. He stopped. He helped the man. He bandaged his wounds. He put him on his donkey. He took him down to uh, a hotel and to a a walk-in clinic, got him the medication, got him bandaged up, put him in a place where he could be cared for, and when the whole thing was over, he came back and he paid the bill, not only for the room and board, but also the medical expenses, and gave the man money to get on his way and do the thing. And here's what Jesus asked. He said in, in Luke 10, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You see, the whole whole process behind mercy, the whole thought process behind mercy isn't just having a nice 
thought about somebody that's in a miserable condition. It's not just feeling bad for the person who's living in misery. It's not just coming along somebody and going like, I know your life really stinks right now. I'm going to pray for you. It's actually stepping up and doing it. We can never imagine that we are merciful just because we feel compassionate towards someone in distress. True mercy demands action. True mercy demands action. But that's not all that's involved where mercy exists. Mercy is much bigger and broader than just acting in goodwill towards the the downtrodden. In, In James, when he wrote his letter to the church, he said this, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, so what James is saying is is that we need to act on what we see. We need to put our hands and feet into it and come alongside those people who are in a miserable state. Acting merciful towards those who are in need of its own is the evidence that we ourselves have received mercy. And one of the big life principles is found in the words of the Apostle Paul as he wrote his letter to the Corinthian church. And he said, I pass on to you what I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you can't pass what God wants you to pass on to somebody else until you've received it. And so Jesus is saying, when you receive my mercy, when you experience my mercy, then you're able to turn around and hand that mercy off to those who are in a miserable condition. It takes action along with faith. It it wants us to step in and do what we can do. So the reality is is that we can only pass mercy along to others if we have truly received mercy from Jesus. In 1 John, um, as he wrote his letter to the church, he said this, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And then James kind of came along with the same idea. And he said this, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warmed and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also by faith, if if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, so what Jesus is saying is, is that if you're going to step up and you're going to be merciful, which we all should be, And by the way, being merciful is different than having the gift of mercy. If you've been in this church for any time at all, you know I don't have the gift of mercy. Matter of fact, I would probably say I'm really sorry about your tough luck, slap you on the back, say God loves you, slip you $5 and kick you out the door. That's my gift of mercy. But what God calls me to do is to be merciful. And that's a totally different thing. Because it's It's part of who I am because of what I have received from Jesus. And so, true belief is never to be devoid from attitude and action. But where the attitude, but what are the attitudes that motivate or empower mercy? Where does that come from? We often think of mercy as giving a cup of cold water in Jesus' name to those who have none. But yet, as Jesus brings this beatitude to our attention, we know that Jesus has more in store for us than what just meets the eye. 
Mercy is also found in forgiveness. Remember the grace that was given. Um, remember, as we started this off, we talked about grace that was given to the undeserving. And we made the distinction between grace and mercy because mercy is compassion to the miserable. But mercy is not void of grace. As a matter of fact, grace empowers mercy. So the merciful extend forgiveness to those who have wronged them. If we refuse to exercise mercy by extending forgiveness, then we're suspect in our authenticity of our faith. We're, we're, we're truly, if we're truly walking in forgiveness, then it becomes authentic to those around us. They see it and they go like, that guy, that gal walks with Jesus because of the way that they live their lives in, in showing mercy not only to the miserable, but in their ability to forgive those who have wronged them. And so this morning what we want to do is understand what it looks like, what Jesus is telling us. And one of the best pictures, I think, for us to understand is, is how mercy and forgiveness are received, received by Jesus, or given by Jesus, and we receive it from Jesus. I, I don't know if you remember the story in the Gospels where Jesus is invited to one of the Pharisees' homes. I hate to tell you what his name was, but his name was Simon, and that may be fitting because I'm a recovering Pharisee, just like you. And as she came in, as Jesus was reclining at the table to eat, this woman, she came in and she wept so many tears that she was able to wash Jesus' feet with her tears. I've seen that. I've seen that with my wife over the last few months. I I asked her the other day, we were driving up to Billings because I had a meeting up there, and I asked her, I said, Where do you get more tears from? Because I thought you'd be empty by now. And so this woman sitting at Jesus' feet, as he's reclined at the table, she she cries so hard. And, And it's not out of sorrow. It's out of joy. And she cries and she cries and she cries. Then she does the unthinkable. She lets her long hair down. And she takes her hair and she bends over and she wipes the tears and the dirt and the mud off of Jesus' feet and cries some more, and she cleans Jesus' feet. Then she takes a jar of alabaster perfume, the most expensive perfume you could, you could have. Just think of, of spending like $2,000, $3,000 on a little bit of perfume, and she had a big jar of it, and she broke it open. And the aroma of it filled the room, and she took and she anointed Jesus' feet with this alabaster jar of perfume. And those people sitting around the table, dining with Jesus, their thought wasn't, I wonder what took place in this woman's life that she would show such great love and devotion to Jesus. Their concern was her reputation. Does Jesus really know who this woman is? And if he knew, he wouldn't let her do this. And Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, he said to them, those who have been forgiven much, love much. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. She authenticated her love for Jesus by the way that she loved him. 
She embraced the forgiveness. She understood what it meant to receive mercy and forgiveness. And so those who who refuse to be merciful and to forgive, there's only one reason. Because they have never really understood the grace of Christ and experienced His forgiveness to its fullest depths. So those who refuse to do that are on the outside of grace and forgiveness. Now this warning to those, this is a warning to those who do not forgive, refuse to forgive. It's a warning against their soul because their soul is in danger. There is a significant difference between those who have forgiven but still find anger and bitterness and resentment creeping back into their lives in regard to the person that they have to forget, forgive. And yet they know in their heart that Jesus is calling them to forgive yet one more time. And so in their weakness, they said, I'm, I'm weak, I need your strength. And God comes in and He strengthens their resolve to forgive those people once again. And they are thankful to God that they keep pressing on. And that's totally different than those who, who refuse to give because they don't understand what it means to walk in the fullness of Jesus. It's a serious thing when someone refuses to forgive because their, their soul and their spiritual being is in serious jeopardy. People who refuse to give are spiritually unhealthy and they have big life issues that keep popping up in, in relationships and, and creating Bigger issues for them in other relationships. When you have an unforgiving spirit here, it manifests itself over there. And those over there wonder why you're such a miserable cuss. And it's because you haven't stepped in to the fullness of giving mercy as you have received mercy. When we offer goodwill and forgiveness to the extent that this beatitude requires, it reveals two things about us. It reveals, first of all, the authenticity of our faith in Christ. And the second thing, to the extent that we show mercy, is connected to the health of our spiritual life. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Our next one is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart carries the idea of being free from every taint of evil. Jesus, and by the way, what is evil? Sin. The thought about that person, the lie, the jealousy, the envy, the gossip, the slander, all evil. Jesus means for us who are pursuing purity of heart not to bring mixed motives and an undivided loyalty into our relationship with God. It's a heart of singleness in devotion to God. Pure, unmixed devotion. Pursuing God with unmixed devotion is one of the biggest challenges that we face in our life. We all have a heart issue 
in, and in its natural state, our heart does not seek purity and singleness of devotion to God. We seek other things. We seek other relationships. We think, seek other pleasures. We seek more stuff. We seek less relationship with God and more uh, self-indulging relationships that make us feel good about ourselves. That's what we do when we aren't pure in heart towards God. And it's, it, it, it really shows the desperateness of our heart. And God understood the depravity of the human heart. That's why we have all these different things that we're going to look at here that, that points us in the right direction. Psalm 24 says this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in the holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. You see, the psalmist David, when he wrote this psalm, he's seeking for people to understand. He wants them to understand what it means to seek God at at his, his deepest level in order to enter into a deep and lasting relationship where God does stuff in our lives and we know the intimacy with God that we've never known before as we walk into that that whole process, it's because we come in with clean hands and a pure heart. That means we've, we've, we've been able to purify our hands from the sinful deeds that we've been performing. We're starting to live a life that reflects the glory of God. Our heart's desires and affections are only towards God, not towards the things of this world. And it's not that the things of this world are bad. It's that the things of this world always want to take the place of God. And when they take the place of God, then what happens is, is that our heart gets in the wrong spot, and it becomes hard and cold towards God. In Ezekiel, God said this. This is God's words in in the prophet Ezekiel's writings. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from your uncleanliness, and from all of your idols I will cleanse you. Here it is. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put it within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He also said this in Ezekiel. Just before that, he said, I will give them one heart, A new spirit I will put into them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. So here it is two times that God makes a promise to transform us, but it's by him doing heart surgery on us. And we're all desperate to have heart surgery. We all need God to do the the skillful work of a, a surgeon to surgically move that scalpel and peel back the layers of the flesh to crack open the bone, the joint, and the marrow. That's what God's Word does. It's like a scalpel in God's hands. God's Word does that. It divides the soul from the spirit. It opens us up so that God can reach in and through the blood of Jesus spilled on the cross for us, He reaches in and He takes that heart of stone that has no inclination towards God and He throws it in the trash can and He does a heart transplant and He puts the heart of Jesus into the heart of men and women. And their lives are transformed. And they walk in the newness of God. And God draws us into that place where we now have a heart that longs to be with Him. In this beatitude, Jesus is calling us to pursue God with a pure heart. That that means more than just our mind. 
It does include our mind, but it also includes our emotions and our will. It's the totality of our ability to think, feel, and decide. So a pure heart means that not only our minds, but with our feelings and our actions, they're all to be concentrated singly upon God. That's what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. New Testament writers also under knew that we knew that we would suffer from heart issues even after the heart has been regenerated, renewed by God. The heart still has a default section where it's going to go do its own thing. And so again, James in his letter to the church, and remember, he's writing to church. He's writing to the people who have stepped into faith with Jesus. He's writing to the disciples of Christ. He's writing to those who call Jesus their Lord and Savior. And here's what he says to them. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You see what what, what James is clearly identifying to us is even though we at times uh, walk in the newness of God, there are other times when we step out of the covering of the umbrella of what God has for us and we do our own thing by our own heart's desires. And when we do that, now we've stepped out of the covenant of grace on our own accord. God has not removed it from us. We have removed ourselves from it. And so what the cure is, according to James, is to draw near to God. So here's what James is really saying. Get rid of all your mixed motives, your duplicity, your double-mindedness by being simple and pure in your devotion to God. We have heart issues. We have mixed motives. But when we come to God in relationship by drawing near to Him, He'll take, we just take one little itty bitty step and He'll take a thousand. And He will draw right up close to us and He will do what we ask Him to do. When we say, Give me a new heart, purify my heart, cleanse me from my sin, give me a desire for you, help me to long after you, help me to pant after you. My soul longs for you like a deer in a dry and weary land panting for water. I want you more than anything, God. When that's the cry of our heart, our God comes and He says, I love your desires. Let me fulfill them in your life. And He does it. In Corinthians, it says, I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and Secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That's what God wants. That's really his desire for us. He wants us to have undivided devotion. He wants our loyalties to be to him. And that's the whole purpose of this is that God is doing what he promised he would always do. That is to make us, to transform us, to renew us, to reshape us into the image of His Son. You are to be Christ-like. How do you get to be Christ-like? You get to be Christ-like by taking these words that Jesus has said when He said, 
the blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You see, all those things are descriptive of Jesus. Those are the things that Jesus says, if you're going to walk in the newness of my life, if you're going to walk with me, if you are going to have your life reflect who I am in you, this is who you have to be. But we have this problem. We have this divided devotion instead of undivided devotion. And the reason we do is because, as said in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's the question of the day. Who understands the motives of the heart? We think our motives are good and strong and pure, and yet we we are surprised when we sin. I didn't see that coming. I didn't know I was going to commit adultery. I just kind of fell in bed with that person. Oh, really? Shocking, isn't it? You know, Jesus, he he says there's this direct line. There's Each and every one of us have this direct line. And it goes to our heart, not to our this heart here, to the, the will, the attitude, the, the thought process, all that encompasses who I am apart from Christ. All of this that encompasses who I am, Jesus says this about me, but he also says it about you. Here's what he says. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person, for out of the heart, Come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Mark recorded the same thing. He said it just a little bit more in depth. Here's what Mark recorded Jesus as saying. For from within, okay, so first of all, let me back it up. He's having a discussion with the Pharisees. Remember Simon the Pharisee? I'm a Pharisee, just like you. We're all recovering Pharisees. Praise Jesus. But the Pharisees were talking about the, the, the religious laws that you had to, to obey and keep. And part of the religious, religious laws was the cleanliness of the, the, um, your dishes, your cups, your plates, and all the rest of the stuff you cooked with. And they looked at the outside cleanliness not at the cleanliness on the inside. So as Jesus does, he's so masterful at giving them a word picture. He's talking about where the cleanliness is and where it isn't. And so he says, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensual, sensuality, uh, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. Your thoughts defile you. You may never act upon a single one of your evil, wicked thoughts. You may be able to live an outwardly um, righteous life where people look at you and they go, He is a good man. And yet your thoughts condemn you. 
And that's exactly what Jesus says. And that's the thing that is, is killing us right now because of when we seek to have purity of heart, it's our thoughts that are keeping us from having a pure heart and a clean hands. And Jesus is going to, we're going to get into this a little bit more later on in the Sermon on the Mount. But this morning, what Jesus is doing, he is calling all of his disciples. That's every person who comes to the Sermon on the Mount and decides that they are going to sit at Jesus' feet. Remember, the the disciples come, they sit at Jesus' feet, they learn from Jesus, and they apply what Jesus says to their lives. They want to live what Jesus is telling them to live. The crowd, they're there, they're in proximity, and they hear what Jesus says, but they only pick up the things that make them sound good. And so here Jesus is saying, you who are my disciples, be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. Now, when we hear that, all it seems to do is to drive us to despair. Because you're looking at me, and you're going like, yeah, he ain't perfect. And I'm looking at all you all, and I'm going like, oh my goodness. I want you to lean to your neighbor right now and say, I'm glad you're not perfect. Go ahead. I think I heard someone just say, I'm glad I'm perfect. <laughs> Lord, have mercy. Mm. 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 Oh. But here's the thing. When it comes to that whole thing of being perfect like our Father in heaven is perfect, and we're going to get into that more, the truth is that we just aren't, and we know it. And so we're, we're conflicted at what does it mean to be perfect because our Father in heaven is perfect. And we're going to, we'll, we'll dissect that a little bit more, but here's the truth of all of it. None of us perfectly models the Beatitudes. None of us perfectly exhibits poverty of spirit. None of us perfectly mourns our sin. None of us is perfectly humble and gentle. None of us perfectly thirsts for righteousness. No one is perfectly pure in heart. So the question is, what do we do? I suggest we throw up our hands and go, there's no use, let's dismiss and go home. Amen? Thank you. There is, there is hope for us. The only thing that we can do, we must cast ourselves on the grace of God and thus receive His radical renewal of our heart. We must ask Him to implant and nourish the character of the kingdom in our lives. If we do this, these qualities will take root and grow within us. Though we never attain absolute perfection in this life, it is dependent only upon Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's why every day we ask God to renew our hearts that we might walk in the fullness of God. So again, this this is highly important because we're seeking the work of God in our lives and we make progress with a few minor setbacks and we're seeking God with a singleness of heart 
mind, and desires. And those things validate our authenticity of being a disciple who sits at the feet of Jesus and not a crowd in close proximity. It also indicates the state of our spiritual health. God demanded a humanly impossible character, and then he gives that character by his grace. So what's our next step? First, be absolutely honest with God about your heart's condition. Remember, we start, I started off when I got up here this morning, no pretenses. We, we like to have pretenses within the family. We like to put on something about who we are that we're really not. We want people to think more highly of us than we, than we should. But we shouldn't think any less of ourselves than we should either. So then let's, let's get rid of the pretenses. Let's come to God. Let's be absolutely honest about the condition of our heart. And the way you do that is by this one step. It's by asking the Holy Spirit to show you the exact state of your heart. Ask the question, then open your ears and listen. And when you hear, write it down. Important. Write it down. Second, acknowledge that, that only God can make your heart pure. Don't start saying, if I just do these six steps, I will have a pure heart. It's only God that can make your heart pure. But that doesn't neglect action on your part or my part. It doesn't mean that we get to be passive in this, this whole process with Jesus. And so what we do is we follow the things we know we need to do to ensure that we have purity of heart. And then we let God come in and bring about the, the, the results through the work of His Holy Spirit in our lives. And then the third thing is to fill yourself with God's Word. Immersion and interaction with God's Word will start to bring purity to your heart. God spoke it, and it happened. God spoke it, and it happened. Okay, let me walk you through this. Jesus, in, in the beginning of the Gospel of John, and the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Word, Logos, living Word, Jesus. Boom. So now, you go back to Genesis, and God spoke... And the earth was formed. Who formed the earth? Jesus. The Word. The living Word. God spoke the moon, the stars, the sun into their place. Gave them names. Who spoke it? You're going to get it. By the end of this, you're going to get it. He breathed life into this clay form on the ground. And he came to life. Who breathed life into him? He walked on this earth, Jesus walked on this earth, and the lepers came to him. He spoke the word, and they were healed. They let the paralytic down through the roof of the house on a mat. He spoke the words. He got up and he walked. Lazarus was four days dead in the grave. He spoke the words and he came out alive. Jesus is the word speaker. 
And Jesus speaks the word better than anybody. And so when you say to Jesus, speak your word into my life, he will speak his word into your life and he will renew your hearts. And you will walk in the fullness of who Jesus is. So here's where we go with this. It comes right out of the word. First John, beloved, we are God's children now. Amen to that. You might feel like a stranger in his house someday, but you are his child. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Well, thank the Lord for that. But we know that when he appears, amen, we will be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes purifies himself as he is pure. There it is right there. You want to know when the purity of heart comes? It's when Jesus Christ comes back the second time and we see him. And at that moment, our hearts are changed and we will have pure hearts forever. So, you and I are going to be transformed at the appearance of Jesus into his likeness. This is the most stupendous thing that we could ever be told. It's the greatest news we'll ever have. This is our purifying hope in Jesus and in Jesus alone. So I leave you with these words that Paul wrote to his beloved friend Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, ungodly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's you and that's me. Praise the Lord. Our Father, this morning, we are so thankful for your zealousness for us. We pray that you would give us a heart, a pure heart for you, of undevoted devotion, of single-mindedness towards you, that with all of our mind, with all of our intellect, with all of our will, with all of our emotion, with all of our feeling, with our entire being, we would pursue you out of the depths of our heart. And when we mess it up, we pray you would come and renew a right spirit in us, God, that we would walk in holiness with you. You've called us to live holy lives. So we pray today by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would make that come true to us, that we would walk so we would be the ones who've been purified till your good coming back for us, Lord God. Give us a heart's desire to do what you've called us to do and help us to be introspective to take a look at our own hearts to be real about where we are and who we are and then by your strength that you would come and you would help us to walk in holiness and righteousness so we just ask you to do your work right even now lord jesus in your great name we pray amen